We were sitting around a table. This was the summer of 2019. So this shows how long this process can take. And someone who was technically on her side, who is on her side, um, and it, it, not within the family, we were all sitting there talking. And, and my grand, my father was on a conference call. My father happens to be a lawyer, but he was not involved in this case. So we're all hearing, the whole family's hearing what's going on. And um, this individual spoke up and he said, look, do you really want this at your age? If you were in your 70s, I wouldn't question it. You should go to FINRA. You should seek retribution. You should, you know, you should view what you want to do. But is this really something you want to deal with now? My grandmother was 93 at that time. And I didn't say anything. I wrote it down, but I didn't need to write it down because I'll never forget it because it affected me on such a deep level as a human being and also as a, as a woman, because I don't know if this male individual would have said that necessarily to a 93-year-old man, but because he's looking at this little older woman, he felt almost, I think, out of a need to protect her to say this. But it bothered me on such an instinctual level because I, I've said earlier, I, I'm, in many ways, I feel that the fight has prolonged her life. It's given her a common quest, uh, this idea of reclaiming her dignity and asserting her voice, which had been taken from her for so long, gave her new life. Um, and it's that quest to reclaim her dignity that's ultimately en enlivened her. I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a clinical geropsychologist, which means that I'm a psychologist who specializes with older adults and families. And this is the Psychology of Aging podcast, your go-to resource for mental health and aging. Last week, I kicked off Elder Abuse Month with uh, an episode on elder abuse and where you can report elder abuse. Today, we're getting a little more personal, and today I interview Kathy Schottenstein Paddock, who is the granddaughter of Beverly Schottenstein, who was an heiress to the Schottenstein family fortune, and Kathy Schottenstein will tell us a little bit about that, that Schottenstein family. But Beverly Schottenstein, the matriarch, was 93 years old when she decided to file charges for financial exploitation against her two grandsons who were managing her wealth with J.P. Morgan and J.P. Morgan. And in February of this year, that's February of 2021, a ruling was found in her favor in which she was awarded $19 million from her grandsons and J.P. Morgan. And, and the ruling determined that her grandsons were indeed guilty of financial exploitation. So Kathy Schottenstein is on the episode today talking about this very painful experience for her grandmother and family with other family members exploiting and abusing their role in her in, in Beverly, then 93, now 95, in Beverly's wealth management. The story is quite painful and you know, what makes it also so painful is this, this experience of betrayal. 
because then of course, once we're betrayed, it's hard to know who to trust. So let me tell you a little bit about Kathy Schottenstein Paddup. Kathy Schottenstein Paddup is a writer and English teacher originally from Columbus, Ohio. She has a BA in English from Emory University and an MA in English from New York University. Her articles have appeared in Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and she has worked for the writing desk at CNN. Kathy currently resides in New Jersey with her husband and two sons. She is currently working on a memoir. It's called Twisted, Conflict, Madness, and the Redemptive Power of a Granddaughter's Love. You can also learn about Kathy Schottenstein Paddup on her website, which I'll link to in the show notes. All right, let's jump into this interview. Kathy Schottenstein Paddup, thank you so much for joining me on the Psychology of Aging podcast and sharing your story and your grandmother's story, your family story with financial exploitation and triumph over Mm -hmm. injustice. So thank you so much for being here. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you and hearing your story and, and insights you have for others. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Can you start by sharing with us about your family? I guess to to go way back, uh, my grandfather uh, was one of four brothers who uh, worked on a business, uh, mostly retail department store, and uh, it had several parts. So originally, were um, my family, the Schottenstein family, is from Lithuania, and they immigrated to the United States. And my great-grandfather, Ephraim Schottenstein, started a business um, actually out of his horse and buggy where he just sold um, outdated and overused goods. And that uh, became, he, he bought his first brick and mortar shop, uh, which he called Schottenstein's, which is the, the last name in uh, Columbus, Ohio, on the south side, on South Parsons Avenue. And that was what he did. And actually, originally, he even physically lived in the store with his wife, and, and they started, you know, having children, and then they, they got their own home. But this was, this was how he made a living. And my grandmother helped him with that. And then um, he had five children, and the and four of them were male. And my grandfather Alvin was one of those four children. And um, my grandfather was recruited into the army uh, during World War II. Actually, while he was in college, so he he left college to to go into the army, and he was he was drafted as uh, I think a private, which I, I believe was like the lowest form. And then he was ultimately selected for officer's training school. And he ended up leaving after six years uh, in World War II because he actually was drafted before the war even technically started. Um, And he left as a captain. And for the last year and a half, I believe he was in India. My grandmother likes to say that he he ended up losing his hair. And she's like, he always said it was because he was in India. (laughs) So like, I'm not sure if it was the physical location of being there or what, but Anyway, um, so when my grandfather returned from the war, he really immersed himself in his father's business, Schottenstein Stores, and he worked with his brothers. And so the four brothers worked together. They all had an equal stake. So it was about 25% per brother, but they had different responsibilities. So some of them did real estate. Some of them were involved with furniture, which is Value City. Uh, My grandfather in particular was the president of Schottenstein's department stores, which ended up expanding and having many stores throughout the Midwest. 
Um, and that, that was his focus. So um, my grandfather died in his early 60s, young. Um, I was two years old when he died. He died in 1984. Um, and uh, at that time, my grandmother and her family, my grandmother had four children, has four children. Um, they ultimately, around 1990, sold the 25% stake of the business and, and left the Schoenstein business. And right now, uh, the business is actually controlled by the son of one of the brothers, uh, which is, uh, so it's now controlled by Jay Schoenstein, who's the son of Jerome. And that was my grandfather's youngest brother. Um, so that's a bit of the background of the story. And it's where the wealth originates from. It originates from this family business. Um, and there was, there was turmoil even back then when they were getting out of the business, there was a lawsuit, family businesses, you know, and in hindsight can have those sorts of problems. And they did. Um, there are still a number of, of family members that, that are uh, somewhat mostly estranged as a result of the turmoil from, from those early times. That being said, I grew up knowing that there was this lawsuit, but I was just a little girl. So while it was, sort of the background of my childhood, I was, you know, in many ways, blissfully unaware of where the money originated from and moreover, how much money there was. And I say this sometimes during interviews, the truth is we were a family that never talked about money. So we, and my grandmother actually always was fairly frugal. Um, you know, she didn't have a lot of expensive clothes and she, she always was in the house that she was in with her husband before he died and where she raised her kids in Columbus, Ohio. My dad attended public school, that sort of thing. I, I went to public school. So while there was this, this backdrop of the Schottenstein name in Columbus, Ohio, because some of the stores are named after the last name and it's a known name in Columbus and they tend to be very philanthropic and are generous with donations and therefore their names often attached to those donations. It was really not something we ever talked about and we didn't know. And then um, my cousin, Evan, who is the same age as me, I'm 39 years old. He graduated uh, college and we, we graduated the same year. We both graduated in 2004. And he wanted to go into uh, financial advising in the brokerage industry. And he asked my grandmother if he could control her estate. And at the time, her estate was being controlled by outside advisors. And again, because we really didn't talk much about money I, for one, didn't have any concept of how much money he was really asking to be in charge of or what the ramifications of that could be. Um, and I was also young and I was just out of college and, you know, going, getting married soon and, and that sort of thing. So I had my own world going on. And so ultimately in 2006, my cousin Evan did get control of my grandmother's estate and started being her financial advisor. and. It's, it's kind of crazy to think about that. That started in 2006 and ultimately he switched firms a number of times. And in, I think you mentioned 2014, was it? Um, that's when, I, I believe that's when he started at JP Morgan. So he started at a few different firms. He was at Morgan Stanley before he was at JP Morgan. And then I believe he was at Citigroup before that. So he was at a number of big banks, but he was at JP Morgan for five years 
And that was up until my cousin and I were visiting my grandmother, which was the holidays, Christmas time of December, 2018, Christmas time, 2018, right before the new year of 2019. And things started getting concerning because my grandmother um, has an aide named Don Henry. And she had alerted me a few months before I came to visit my grandmother that that she thought there was some suspicious activity and she actually suspected some elder abuse. And I think it's important to know my cousin Evan's family lives one floor below my grandmother in Florida. So they had proximity to my grandmother and just incredible access. They literally had a key to her back door and could come in anytime they wanted. And for the rest of the family who was dispersed throughout the United States. My dad's still in Columbus. I'm in New Jersey. It was actually nice knowing that someone was there close by. That's a family member that can help take care of her. But what I've come to learn writing my book and and since my grandmother's trial and, and case is that can be a warning sign. It's something to be careful of when you're talking about elder abuse, because oftentimes elder abuse is committed by those within within the family itself. And I think it's why that, that, that fact is, is because they have access, they're close by and who's really monitoring close family members. So while it can be lovely to be close to your aging parent, it is important that other family members are at least aware of what's going on and not just assuming everything's okay. Um, So what happened was they had a a lot of access, access to her mailbox, access to her phone, you know, constantly there in the same building physically. And Don Henry had been hired a few years before when my grandmother fell and broke her hip at a beauty salon. And that was back in 2016 when Don Henry was hired. And Don started becoming suspicious, she'll say very early on, um, because they would often come up, Evan and his father, Bobby, would come up one flight of stairs and be shredding my grandmother's documents and statements. And so Don, that was the first alarm bell that rang for Don because she thought, why are they going through her statements. I mean, my grandmother wasn't asking them to shred her statements. So why are they doing this? And they were doing it in a back room. And that Don felt suspicious. Then around the time I came to visit, Don told me, do you know, we're not getting statements. Like nothing's coming in the mail for us. So again, I thought that was strange, but to be honest, I really didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to start creating tension within the family and and start asking these difficult questions, which now I've learned you do need to to not be afraid to ask. Um, But I didn't really say, I didn't say anything at the time. And she told me the statements had stopped coming. Then we're all congregated at my grandmother's condo in Bell Harbor, Florida. And this is Christmas time of 2018. And my cousin Alexis was also visiting. And my cousin Alexis was physically staying in my grandmother's condo, along with my grandmother's live-in caretaker, Dawn. And I was with my family at a hotel nearby. And Alexis was there when a package arrived. And it's this FedEx package from JP Morgan. And so 
we're like, what's this package? So they open up the package and it ends up being this KOTU equity fund. And my grandmother was committed for, I believe, $5 million to, that's based in the Cayman Islands. And it was for a number of years. And my grandmother's in her 90s. So Alexis and Don are like, Nanny, this is what we call her. Like, what's this fun? And my grandmother, who is not financially sophisticated at all, and will be the first to admit that, had no idea what the fun was. So then my cousin Alexis called me and we started getting concerned. And that's when Alexis sat down with my grandmother and had her computer because my grandmother does not have a computer and, and never has had a computer, would not know how to turn on a computer, which is sort of similar to me, but um, I, I do know how to turn on the computer most of the time. And so Alexis had her own computer and was able to get a password and it turned out. So she sits down with my grandmother and they start looking through her statements. And it turns out my cousin Evan had enrolled my grandmother in paperless statements. So the reason she wasn't receiving her statements was because they were all coming to her electronically. And to do that, you have to have an email address. Again, my grandmother's never had a computer. So of course, she's never had an email address. So then it was uncovered that there was a fictitious email address, literally named bev.shantstein at gmail.com that all her statements are going to, essentially a black hole because my grandmother does not have a computer and does not have an email address. So that's really when the snowball began to roll and it never stopped rolling for quite some time after that because it was obvious that there was suspicious activity and there shouldn't be an email address and you know what what, what how is she committed to this fund and supposedly her signatures on it and my grandmother saying she never signed it so we started being concerned that there was forgery which in fact there was and um it 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 escalated from there wow how old was your grandmother when this started 93 93 and how old is she now 95 she had her birthday yesterday on june 13th how did she celebrate? She went out with Dawn and they actually sent me a few pictures and um, they had ice cream and went out to lunch, a late lunch. And um, it was great. And I sent her a necklace and she was wearing her necklace. And that was one of the things my grandmother growing up always loved her jewelry. And um, I remember like one of, <clears throat> excuse me, my distinct memories as a little girl, because I really grew up with my grandmother. My, my parents divorced when I was two years old. So when I was with my father, nine times out of 10, I was also with my grandmother. So I, I grew up in that house. And I remember every Friday night after dinner, watching her slip off her rings and hear the clink in the glass bowl while she took off her rings and her necklace and, you know, painted her nails every Friday night. And so she always loved her jewelry, as many women do. And um, that one of the sad things with this case is um, it also came out during the trial that my cousin Evan was um, monitoring a safe deposit box of my grandmother's where she had kept all her jewelry, including her, her engagement, her, her wedding ring. Um, and all that jewelry was in the safe deposit box. And then it turned out my cousin Evan's father, Bobby, ended up taking the jewelry out of that without my grandmother's permission. And she's never seen her jewelry again. And so... Um, it's, you know, some, when I, when I give her presents, I like to give her jewelry because she misses her jewelry and it's nice for her to have something pretty to wear. And so it was nice to see that she was wearing the necklace yesterday at her birthday party. 
So her wedding ring was in that safe deposit box that was taken? Yes. uh, Her seven carat diamond wedding ring from my grandfather Mm -hmm. who passed away in his early 60s was in there along with pretty much all of the jewelry she's ever had. Things that my grandfather bought her that have, you know, family heirlooms and and sentimental Mm -hmm. value for anyone. And we've never seen it again. So it's definitely part of part of the tragedy of this whole elder abuse case. And now how many children, your, your grandmother and grandfather had four children, four children. Bobby was one, your father was one. Yes. And then two others. So my, my father, Charles is the eldest. Um, then his sister, Randy is one year. And then a few years later came Bobby. And then the last is Gary. And I have a couple of questions for you about your family dynamics, but I want to back up. Why did Don reach out to you in particular to share that she was concerned about potential exploitation or fraud? Well, apparently she'd been reaching out to a number of us. Um, and actually the irony is I had never even spoken to Don on the phone ever. I had seen her occasionally when I would come to visit, um, but we didn't I, I, I didn't know much about her at all. Um, and we had never spoken on the phone. And she said that it was really, she calls it now like a cry for help. She was getting desperate. Um, she had mentioned the jewelry had gone missing a few years before this. She had mentioned that to my father. The rest of the family knew about it. I actually didn't know about it uh, until all this. Um, she had been mentioning things to my cousin Alexis, but Alexis is younger and she was in college and she was in graduate school and she was actually in Europe. So, you know, you're, you get busy with your own lives and who wants to start investigating their own family, especially when we're not even there, they were the ones that were physically with her in Florida. The rest of us were dispersed around the United States. And and for Alexis's case, she was actually in England. Um, So it was almost one of those things that you don't want want to hear about. You don't want to be involved in. But after um, enough warning signs, there really was no choice. And I felt sucked into it. And it wasn't easy. Um, At first, if my cousins, and I say this now, but it's really the truth. If they had admitted that they had done wrong and apologized at the very beginning when it was discovered that why, why is her name on this Cayman Islands fund? She doesn't know about this. And this is not her signature. Why is her jewelry gone? If they had apologized and said, you know, maybe we weren't educated. Maybe we didn't even know what we were doing, but we're sorry. We did our best. You take your money and, and do what you want with it. Um, this would never have gotten to where it is today. They took an extremely aggressive stance. And when other family members, including myself, Alexis, my father, the rest of the family came together and started asking these questions about why is she not receiving her statements? Why is there a fake email address? Why is all of her jewelry missing? They said they did nothing wrong. They continue to this day to say they've done nothing wrong, even though they've already been found liable of all charges. Um, and Bobby and wrote a letter also, right? Bobby, Bobby wrote, wrote a letter, a letter saying yes. he took the jewelry. Admitting that he took the jewelry. Did not apologize. Just said, I took the jewelry because I got involved with some bad people and I needed the jewelry to pay off some bad business debts. If there had just been some acceptance and um, contrition and apology this would never have escalated, but they took a very aggressive stance. And then my grandmother was harassed. 
and she was physically harassed um, in which my, my cousin Evan's father came up and physically forced her to write a retraction letter to JP Morgan saying, I got it all wrong. Evan didn't do anything. Everything's fine. And then my, my, my grandmother's caretaker, Don, had to drive her to the hospital because she was in so much pain because he ended up hurting her shoulder very bad. And she still has pain to this day. Um, so that's physical assault right there. But more, more over, there was so much psychological and mental abuse and harassment. Uh, on multiple occasions, my cousins were secretly videotaping my grandmother and in her own condo, in her home, um, and actually wanted to use that as evidence for themselves to say that she had dementia, that there was something wrong with her, that they didn't do anything wrong, but there definitely was something wrong with her. She didn't understand the charges that she was bringing upon them. That was not allowed. Um, in part, well, I think in large part, because in Florida, you are not allowed to secretly videotape someone without their knowledge or consent. But the fact that they were even doing it shows the environment that she was living in for so long and how this escalated. And frankly, she still has anger about it to this day. She may have won her case, which she did. She she won on every single count. Um, but what she went through from her own family, in particular her son and her two grandsons, Evan and Avi, um, and the fact that there's never been any acceptance or apology is why she continues to talk about it because deep it's a it's a deep wound. And um yes, yes, the court found them liable, but I think until and I don't believe this will ever happen, but until there's uh, some acknowledgement that she was right and that they did do wrong, um, I'm not sure that she'll ever really stop talking about it because it's such a deep wound for her and it's for the whole a, family. It's such a betrayal. Yes. And her child and her grandsons. So then how does how did she come to know who to trust in the family then? Because sometimes when we're betrayed by somebody right. we trust, right. right. Then it's hard to trust other people. So how, how did she come to trust you? I think you've been a helper and an advocate for her through this. Yeah. What has your role been with her and how has she, does she trust other family members? How's that going? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, I, I think, she she had an extreme amount of trust in them, uh, in part, be, well, they were controlling all her money. So you would want to trust the person that's in charge of all your assets, um, but also because they were physically there. When she fell and broke her hip, she hired Don Henry. Sometimes when you have someone outside of the family come in, that can give a new perspective that the rest of us don't have. And so here we have a fresh set of eyes that's looking at everything and saying, why, why is that happening? Or that does not seem right. Um, Dawn, ultimately, my grandmother started really trusting and confiding in Dawn. And at one point, my grandmother said, you know, uh, they, they brought a estate lawyer up here and they had me change my will and trust. And the rest of the family didn't even know about that. And, and they were doing all the talking and I don't even know what's in the will and trust. So Dawn again says, that doesn't sound right. You know, that doesn't seem appropriate. So she really gradually began to trust Dawn. 
outside of the family. And perhaps it's because Don was outside of the family that she did start trusting her because, you know, maybe she didn't want to make waves within her own family and get one sibling or cousin upset with someone else. So it started with Don, who's just been a hero uh, in this story from the beginning. She could have looked the other way. She didn't have to do what she did. And and she did. Um, I am one of eight grandchildren and, um, in some ways I, I write in my book that my grandmother and all of us really kind of came full circle throughout this whole ordeal, because I grew up with my grandmother looking up to her as almost like a surrogate mother. My parents shared joint custody and I lived with my mom, but on the weekends I was with my father, which meant I was also with my grandmother. Um, so I was extremely close to my grandmother. My grandma was there when I graduated high school. She was at every band concert. She was at everything. (laughs) Um, So I had every Friday night dinner at my grandmother's house. So we were very close. I got older, went away to college, and she became more dependent on Bobby and his side of the family. And then when it became obvious that she needed to step back and reexamine her ties to them, the rest of the family, I think she really fell back on the rest of the family. And the rest of the family was happy to be part of her life um, because we had really felt that we had been pushed away. And that's another thing that is common with elder abuse is the abusers tend to isolate their victims. And so they had access and they had this control and to keep the control, they wanted everyone to have their own busy lives. And maybe, yes, you come visit once a year, but, you know, at a distance. And they were happy to sort of foster this idea that they were the ones taking care of our grandmother and she was happy with them and the rest of us can go off and do our own thing. And when she really needed the rest of the family, we were, we were there to support her. And, um, I was there as well. You know, I'm, Truthfully, in in a lot of ways, this case skipped over the generation, which is her her children, and kind of fell onto the grandkids. And um, I'm not, do I know why that is? Not necessarily, but maybe just because we were younger. So we had more of the energy to be able to get the right people in place and not want to just sort of sit apathetically and also grandchildren aren't necessarily as close as actual siblings who grew up together. So maybe it was easier for us to form certain alliances and be able to recognize that others are committing some abuse and and need to be put in check. Um, So my grandmother's uh, actual children were involved and have supported her, but a lot of it ended up falling on the next generation, which is the grandchildren. And um, immediately when my grandmother started having problems, I reached out to a friend at another very large bank who's a partner at that bank and said, do you think we could get some, some outside broker to examine her statements? Because I'm an English major. You said yourself, you, you majored in English also. If you show me a statement, including my own, I really don't know what I'm looking at. I can look at the number at the bottom, but I don't know what's what's trading and what's supposed to be happening. Um, So I needed someone in finance to take a look at those statements. And uh, my friend ended up sending a, a broker from the firm that he worked at immediately. And he and his boss started getting involved. And that's when they were able to really pour through her statements and say, okay, there's excessive 
churning. I never even knew what that word was, but that means like trade. Exactly. That means trading uh, excessively. So like you buy something and then immediately you sell it and, and you just keep doing that. And every time you do that, the broker who's selling and buying makes commissions. So if you're doing it over and over and over again, you're making a lot of commissions. So that's, you're not, that's illegal. You're not allowed to be churning someone's account. They were definitely doing that. But among other things, um, a lot of much more egregious crimes. Uh, I mean, ultimately, when they went to trial, there were charges of elder abuse, wire fraud, the creation of a fictitious email account, forgery. These are criminal offenses. Elder abuse in itself is actually a felony in the state of New York and in most states. You can serve prison time. But what I came to learn, and again, this is not something I knew beforehand, when you are going up against a broker who's represented by a brokerage industry and a, a top bank, you can't just take them to court. Um, you don't get to just charge them or, or level criminal charges or take them to civil court. You have to go through a process that's called FINRA. You have to. So there is some um, legislation, I believe, now where they're trying to make it so that you can take your broker if you suspect foul play to court. But now, it, you still, to this day, you have to go through FINRA, which is, um, I believe it's Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. And you have to take your case and file it with FINRA. And if you do not settle, ultimately, it's a trial that's just like any other trial, but it's supposed to be kept private. FINRA's rules are that all their cases are kept private. So everything they hear about, and like I said, these are serious criminal offenses, are kept private and behind closed doors. And the only reason we're talking about this now is because my grandmother chose to speak to the press about what happened. The verdict is always public. FINRA's verdict is always public. And they did create a splash because they put out this big award for my grandmother of $19 million, which was one of their the biggest awards they've given in several years. And here, this is during the pandemic. So my grandmother's entire trial happened over Zoom. Um, which was quite awkward in itself. I, I literally testified over a computer and saw little squares of my cousin's face and this face and that face and the lawyer interrogating me and questioning me on my computer right from this seat. Um, so it was a strange sort of surreal experience, very extremely unpleasant experience to begin with. But the, the verdict comes out and that's public, but you don't know what the real charges are. You see the figure and you see that they were found liable for serious things like financial fraud and elder abuse. That sounds pretty bad, but you don't know what she was really saying they did, um, except for the fact that she chose to give the story uh, an exclusive to Bloomberg, who ended up writing a big piece about it. And that's why the public is aware of what it is they really, what, what they really committed. That being said, there have been no criminal charges um, since the FINRA ruling, and and so far they have not paid the, what oh. they've been asked to pay, what they've been told they have to pay. And was there a recent legal, another legal suit or case? It's been the same case. My cousins were trying to settle with my grandmother. Another thing about this FINRA is even after a verdict, 
a judgment, an award is given, you do have the right, if the other party's willing to settle and not accept the large judgment. So my grandmother for a time was entertaining the idea of settling for significantly less than what she was awarded uh, just to get it over with. But ultimately those talks broke down because on, on the paper agreement, my cousins wanted certain things in writing that my grandmother's estate lawyer told her were not appropriate for her to sign. At first, they even wanted her to sign what was essentially a gag order where she wasn't even allowed to talk about the case ever. That wasn't going to happen. But then it got to um, some tax implications and um, some other things that she, her estate lawyer ultimately told her, you should not sign this. This is not acceptable for you. So she is not settling and she is asking for the amount that they were told they have to give. And we'll see what happens with that. As we were preparing for this interview, you shared with me as your, your grandmother was sitting around a table or maybe it was a Zoom call. Uh, no, contemplating. It, table, right? it was a table then at yeah, that time. Before COVID. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so before COVID, she was contemplating taking legal action or pursuing yes. Um, justice yes. for exploitation. And and will you talk about that experience and, and what you shared with me before this call? Yes. Um, yeah, we were sitting around a table. This was the summer of 2019. So this shows how long this process can take. And someone who was technically on her side, who is on her side, um, and it, it, not within the family, we were all sitting there talking. And, and my grand, my father was on a conference call. My father happens to be a lawyer, but he was not involved in this case. So we're all hearing, the whole family's hearing what's going on. And um, this individual spoke up and he said, look, do you really want this at your age? If you were in your 70s, I wouldn't question it. You should go to FINRA. You should seek retribution. You should, you know, you should view what you want to do. But is this really something you want to deal with now? My grandmother was 93 at that time. And I didn't say anything. I wrote it down, but I didn't need to write it down because I'll never forget it because it affected me on such a deep level as a human being and also as a, as a woman, because I don't know if this male individual would have said that necessarily to a 93-year-old man, but because he's looking at this little older woman, he felt almost, I think, out of a need to protect her to say this. But it bothered me on such an instinctual level because I, I've said earlier, I, in many ways, I feel that the fight has prolonged her life. It's given her a common quest, uh, this idea of reclaiming her dignity and asserting her voice, which had been taken from her for so long, gave her new life. Um, and it's that quest to reclaim her dignity that's ultimately enlivened her. She, she now to me is, is the grandma that I knew growing, growing up when I was a little girl, um, more so than what I've seen the past few years. Um, because she's like gotten this, she's always been sort of the spunky, fiery woman and she lost that and she's gotten it back. And, um, you know, she she proved them all wrong. She insisted she was resolute that she was going to do this, knowing full well that it would be difficult for her family, that she would be 
having to go on trial that I ultimately ended up having to testify her, for her for over two days. My grandmother herself was cross-examined by my cousin's lawyer for over 11 hours on the stand over Zoom. It lasted over three days. So she was really put through fire for this, but ultimately she wanted it. And it, yes, she did end up victorious. She won, but I don't think it has anything to do with winning or losing. She fought and that's what made her feel good. And it's what's brought people to her and she gets fan mail um, and she sometimes responds to them. She makes a phone call. Like there was a, a man in his nineties in California and she ended up speaking to him on the phone and there were like supposedly arranging to get together at some point. <laughs> and so, um, because, because, they were so sort of impressed and emboldened and empowered by hearing her story. And it has nothing to do with the numbers or the fact that she was victorious, but it was the fact that she chose to fight and fight even within her own family and say, right is right. And wrong is wrong. And I'm not going to stand for it anymore. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a great, great story for a lot of people because of that. Yeah. And the notion to back down because you're older yeah. is so incredibly ageist and yes. adds to the injustice. Yeah. Only certain groups of people are allowed to fight for justice. And you're not part of the group that can do that because you're over 90 or over 80 or whatever his criteria right. or her criteria, that person's criteria was. Yeah. I was a man. And yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sense of protection. Well, who's protecting her when? <laughs> When the people are exploiting her. And so Don Henry yes. was, like you said, a real hero. We should all have a Don Henry in oh, our life because she was quite the whistleblower. She was reaching out to people, letting your grandmother know she was concerned. She was, and she's been there every step of the way. When my grandmother was having to deal with this trial, my grand, my Don Henry was sitting right next to her off camera, but next to her, just there for moral support. Mm-hmm. Um, Don has had to see her through this and it has not been easy. My grandmother lost hair. She's lost sleep. She wasn't eating properly. I mean, Don has been there through thick and thin to, to keep her going. And, um, you know, they had a great day yesterday because it was my grandmother's birthday and they went out for ice cream and a special lunch. And, you know, she wore this necklace that I got for her and, you know, she, it was a beautiful day and Don sent me the pictures, but Don's been there through the dark times as well. And it has not been easy. And let me tell you, I testified, it wasn't easy for me. It, it was, it was hard to make the decision to do it. And it was hard during, and it was hard as aftermath. I was pacing around my block. It was not an easy thing. My 90, at that time, 94 year old grandmother did it. That right there should make anyone feel that they can stand up for themselves no matter what, because she did do it. And, um, and she wanted to do it. No one was telling her to do it. If anything, other people were telling you, you don't really need this fight. Uh, and she told them, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So it's empowering. It's a great lesson for me, you know, growing up. And I'm happy that my boys uh, were able to see that. We're able to see that uh, we don't take advantage of our great grandmother and that you can step in yourself as the granddaughter and, and do the right thing. So it's a good le- life lesson for everybody. And that you're never too old to fight for justice. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Now you are writing a book about your family experience and your experience. Tell us a little bit about this book and where you're hoping to take it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's sort of um, has become my life <laughs> in many ways. Uh, I've always been a writer. I, my, my background is English and, and my degrees are in English and I used to be a journalist. Um, and basically what happened, this process took so long that it really just became a therapeutic project for me to start writing down what was happening because so many crazy things were happening. I wanted to just keep track of all of it. Um, but when you start that door, <laughs> uh, when you go through that door, I should say, um, it can, it can lead to other things. And, and I just started really enjoying the writing and I, I started taking a night class to become, cause I never really did creative writing. I, I did different kind of writing. So I wanted to learn that, you know, how do I make this better? And, and so I would take a night class after working to, to try to refine the writing that I was doing. Um, and ultimately I'm turning it into a book and, and that's what I'm doing right now. And it's not just about my grandmother's case and, and what she went through, but that is the heart of it. And my grandmother is the heart of it, but it, it goes back to my childhood and, and what it was like growing up with her and what it was like the larger family dynamics, even going back to how the wealth originated in this store that, um, and, and this idea of, of family and money and legacy. Um, those are major themes within the book and, and that's what I'm doing now. So it's exciting. It's fun. And, and truthfully, actually, part of why I did it was my grandmother very early on said, Kathy, you used to write stories. Uh, maybe one day you'll write about this and you'll be able to tell me what went wrong. And that was so powerful um, because she thought like through writing, I would have enough distance to say, maybe this was a pitfall or maybe this is how this occurred. Um, so that was really one of the, an impetus to, to write the story too, was my grandmother was so behind it and, and wanted me to do it. And she's been completely supportive of it through the process. Talk about legacy and mentorship and being a matriarch of a no family question. that even in her hardship yeah. and in her tragedy, she's encouraging you yeah. and cultivating something in you that she values. How special, how really beautiful. Yes. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm eternally grateful. I see that. And you talk about her with so much admiration and respect. It's really, I'm, I'm delighted to hear how you're talking about her and um, her resolve and um, empowerment. It's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What, what would you say to families who don't have millions of dollars, who are suspecting financial exploitation or suspecting something might be amiss? Right. What would you say? Well, first I'd say I didn't even realize there were millions of dollars. So, um, you know, it, I, I was saying to you earlier, the amount of money sensationalizes it. It's what got her in the news and it, what it initially grabs people like, Oh, this multimillionaire, like that's interesting. You know, we all like to hear stories and, in in the in HBO even like you watch that show Succession and it's always very interesting where you see these very wealthy families that seem to have it all and then you see you peel back the layers and you see actually it's just so much dysfunction and then you realize oh well like everyone has their problems and that's just a universal tale that everyone gravitates toward um, but what I love about this story is is how it resonates with people and. It's not about the money. 
it is about abuse and it's about standing up for oneself. And that is universal. This idea of people, older people being exploited, particularly by family members and family members hurting other family members because they want certain amounts of money. And it could be $1, it could be $100, it could be a million dollars. It doesn't matter the amount of money. It's just greed and access and ability. And and it's unbelievable how many people have shared with me their personal hardships and their personal stories. And what I think resonates with them in particular about my grandma story is a lot of them say, we didn't have the money to fight back, or it would have cost us more to take this to court or to call in the police or to do what we had to do than to just let it go. But I'll never forget it. And I'll never forgive them. And it's something that they hold on to forever. And this idea that my grandma was able to stand up for herself it's power. It's a powerful message to a lot of these people who feel that they themselves have been victimized, but had to turn the other cheek. And so it's really, it's been amazing the response that my grandmother in particular has gotten and that I've gotten to when people hear that I'm writing a book about it because it's helping people share their own experiences and I guess in some ways feel that they too are victorious through her victory, that they, they had the same experiences and the same exploitation, but maybe they couldn't do anything about it. And here she could, and it warms their heart that she was able to triumph and bring it to light. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are embarrassed if they've been exploited and Elder abuse, there's a lot of different kinds of elder abuse. And I I talk about this on my blog, on my website, kathyshonstein.com. There's sexual abuse, there's financial exploitation, there's mental abuse, there's physical abuse. There's a lot of different kinds of elder abuse. Most of it goes unreported. The one element within elder abuse that is reported more than the rest is financial exploitation. Why? Um, Well, maybe because. They, the the elder who has been exploited might not feel as much stigma about saying someone stole money, which can be happen to anybody, as much as if they are being physically abused behind closed doors or or anything else. So that is the more um, spoken about elder exploitation is the financial ex- exploitation, but there are so many forms and they're often kept quiet. And because elder abuse victims are more likely than not abused by members of their own family, the family, the the elder does not usually want to make waves and have to point a finger within their own family. It's painful for my grandmother to this day to know that this was her grandsons who committed these crimes and it was her son who took her jewelry. Um, So it's hard to have to to say that to the world, but what a lesson it is because it's happened to so many other people and maybe they didn't want to say it, but they've had this burden inside them knowing that it happened to them. And here in her nineties, she said it did happen to her and she's not ashamed to admit it. And that's a life lesson for everyone of all ages. Yeah. You mentioned just a minute ago where people can find you on your, your website. Will you tell Mm -hmm. us that one more time? 
Yeah, I have a website, kathyshottenstein.com. And um, there's various tabs at the top. And um, I have a blog that I update regularly. And I post a lot of the media coverage and this podcast, <laughs> I'll put under podcasts, under media. Um, and it's it's been wonderful. It's it's basically the, the segue to my book. Um, a lot of people that are writing books tend to have a book website and, and that's what this is, but it's actually become larger than that. It's become, I've, I've created a newsletter and um, an elder abuse forum just because of the demand for it. The, the people, the emails that I've been getting asking, um, this happened to me. Where where can I get help? Um, you know, who who can you give us some links that were important? Financial crimes. A lot of people don't know that you have to go through FINRA. So I've been trying to just make it a wealth of information for people to be able to come onto that website and and get knowledge for themselves so that they can take action if they have their own situations. Excellent. Well, we'll link to your website and right. thank um, you. Yes, of course. And we'll also include some links on if you're if if listeners are concerned about um, abuse and exploitation, we'll we'll put some links in the chat as well. And um, Kathy Schottenstein Padup, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your family story and your story and the legacy of justice in your family. Hard work. Sounds like your great grandfather, grandfather. Yes father, you know, a long line of hard workers and, and, um, and just in righteousness, the justice. So thank you so much for, for joining us. I also want to say my husband is fully bald and has never been to India. (laughs) So tell your grandmother. She's always said, she's like, I don't think it had anything to do with India, but he always said it was because of the war in India. So I'll tell her that maybe it's yeah. not true. I've been to India and fully bald. And my husband is on his way there as well. And also has never been to India. So see two case studies. Yes. Yes. It's interesting. Maybe we should do a study on that. <laughs> so thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And um, it's lovely to talk to you. It was so good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that the Schottenstein family experience and their willingness to share their story helps to remind you and guide you that if you're concerned about a client or a patient or a family member who might be financially exploited or experiencing financial abuse, to take it seriously, to pursue investigation. You don't necessarily have to be the one investigating. That might not be your job. But there are resources that can be helpful, and I will link to them in the show notes. Please take it seriously. Next week, I'll be interviewing Peter Lichtenberg, who is the founder of OlderAdultNestEgg.com and is a national expert in financial abuse and exploitation. Peter Lichtenberg shares tons of resources and information for families experiencing financial vulnerability. There are financial vulnerability assessments on his website, and he's here to talk with us all about what we can do to be more mindful of financial vulnerability and resources for safeguarding against exploitation. This is a great episode for anybody, really. So people who work with older adults, meaning professionals, older adults themselves, and family members who and caregivers who might be caring for older adults. So please join me next week. I know that you hear me say this every week, 
But if this is adding value and you like what you've heard today, please take some time to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. Subscriptions and reviews really do help. I'm not just saying that. It really does help people to find this show. And it's a free resource, kind of a public health initiative that I put on by myself. It's not funded. So please, please, your subscriptions and reviews really do help. All right. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.